Hello, hello, TIFO football listeners. I'm Josh Schneider-Weiler, host of This Football Life, and I'll be guest hosting today's episode. Originally, it was supposed to be Joe and Alex, but because of some technical difficulties, you get me. Today, we will be exploring the world of Turkish football with writer Patrick Ketty. Ketty is a freelance journalist based in Turkey and is the author of the new book, The Passion, Football, and the Story of Modern Turkey, which you can find on Amazon. It is the first book to focus exclusively on Turkish football. In this episode, we talk about match fixing in Turkey and why it's been so prevalent in its history, the Gezi protests and football activism, fan groups and their relationship with hooliganism, how the government uses football as a political tool, and the reasons why Turkey has some of the most passionate fans in the world. Get ready for 100 years of Turkish football condensed into one hour. Enjoy my chat with Patrick Ketty. I'm here with author Patrick Ketty. Patrick, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Uh, well, I, I've just finished reading your book uh, last night, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. A lot of interesting tidbits in, in it, and I want to start at one of the most interesting, something that I've always enjoyed, which is uh, football chants. Um, and I want to just read a little uh, quote, um, which is, with the score 3-2 at the final whistle, the victory sent Besiktas to the top of the league. Sex on the beach, sex on the beach, crowd the fans in victory. I don't know why. It's a famous song, said my ecstatic friend by way of explanation. So I'd like to know, do you have a favorite chant or song that you've, you've heard in Turkey? Um... Most of the chants in Turkey are probably unrepeatable uh, on your podcast. They're very rude, uh, often quite uh, sexist and homophobic and stuff like that. But there are some really amazingly poetic uh, chants. Um, you, you know, there's there's a, a it really shows a kind of sense of romantic uh, love that a lot of Turkish fans have for their teams. Um, and there's a lot of great Besiktas songs, and there's one that sort of begins. I can't remember exactly, but it's something like, um, I saw you on a rainy day, you were wearing a striped jersey. Uh, and then it goes on into like the, the meaning of a lot. Uh, I, I can't remember the exact lyrics now, um, but it's very, very poetic. And it's, it's all about kind of death and um, sacrifice and, and romance and, and stuff like that. Wow. Uh, I mean, it sounds, it sounds quite deep, like a, a, a real ballad. Yeah, they are. They're, there's lots of these kind of songs. Um, all, all of the big clubs sing them, and um, there's there's a, um, a Turkish academic who kind of links these songs to sort of like Turkish love songs. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you, you like give another one in in the book, uh, which is like the the Fenerbahce opera that Besiktas fans, which is. Uh, uh, quite funny and, and crude. It talks about, uh, let's just say, uh, telling them to uh, suck my, uh, you know what. Um, uh, so yeah. A lot of interesting ones um, in in the book. Um, but you, you know, you you mentioned in the intro to the book that this is the first um, real English language literature book on Turkish football, and that you know, culture and daily life in uh, Turkey has kind of been ne neglected for a long time uh, so what's something that is frequently misunderstood by anglophiles about turkey and and why do you think that it, it hasn't gotten more you know literature more people haven't published on it 
I think in general, football has not been treated as a kind of legitimate uh, intellectual subject until fairly recently. And with Turkey, there's so many, it's such a poorly understood country and there's so many misconceptions about it. Um, I, I'm not sure why. I think it's, I think Turkish politics is very complicated and it's very hard to kind of understand and and well when you so, when you moved to turkey uh you moved to turkey what was it like uh, uh two or three years ago right yeah uh, about three years ago yeah and when so when you moved there what was one of the the first things that um kind of surprised you or maybe you you had a misconception of your own before you went there well i mean i i think the book the book started basically um with the gezi protests in a way because I was actually living in Egypt at that time and uh, I was watching the anti-government Gezi protests taking place uh, and I was very surprised to see um, you know Besiktas, Fenerbahce and Galatasaray fans like at the forefront of those protests um, really like coming together putting aside their kind of mutual loathing and um, really yeah, take, taking on um, the police um, with with all these other groups as well. So I, as I started to do more and more research into um, Turkish uh, football, uh, what really surprised me was the extent of the politicization of it. Um, I sort of started to find out, uh, you know, how many how many uh, footballers had gone on to become politicians, um, how many. Uh, local mayors were directly involved in politics, um, how political the fan groups were. Uh, I, I started to find out about, I was, I was very surprised to find out that um, Chasha, this, this sort of main Besiktas um, fan group, um, was so sort of politically active and, and socially conscious and they have a lot of chance against racism and uh, environmental destruction and uh, nuclear weapons even even and stuff like that and then just finding out uh, I was very surprised to the extent to which the the AKP government and particularly um, President Erdogan uses football um, and he's actually an ex-semi-professional footballer um, he's sort of constantly talking up his past and his uh, foot, uh, as a footballer and he has this whole mythology he tells these kind of odd stories about himself uh, that uh, Fenerbahce tried to sign him a couple of times, but he turned them down. Um, that his football career uh, kind of came to an end because he refused to shave off his beard um, after the uh, his football team was taken over uh, following the military coup by a by a military figure. Um, and he's constantly using football analogies and metaphors. And the more I looked into Turkish football. Uh, the more I realised I could kind of tell a story about Turkey through football because Turkish football is so bound up in culture and identity and politics in a way that it isn't, to, I mean, to the same extent as, as most countries and certainly English football. Yeah, well, so why, you say he built up this myth about his uh, football career where, I mean, let's be honest, he didn't really go too far. He was, uh, a, a, you know, essentially like an academy player, um, semi-pro and, and never really made it. But why would he, you know, build this mythology? What uh, benefit did he see from that? Why would he do that? 
I think because football is so popular in Turkey, um, you know, I think there's been some surveys done and I think something like 97% of Turkish people support a team. Um, maybe they're not active, they're not active football fans exactly, but they support a team and it's, it's a shortcut and it's a language that's easy to understand. If you want to convey something or you want to connect with people, you can use football. It's, it's really effective in Turkey. Um, so when Erdogan is on the campaign trail, uh, he will wear the scarf of the local team and he will, he, he's always really keen to be seen and uh, to be involved in new stadium projects, whether it's sort of laying foundation stones or opening them or even playing exhibition matches in some of them. Um, so I think on the one hand, football football in Turkey has always been political and uh, even going back to the Ottoman Empire, um, I think there's been a legacy of authoritarianism in Turkey, which means that pe- people have always they've always kind of revered football or and feared it as well. So they're always trying to use it as a as a as like a political tool. But it's it's also the sort of one area that's hardest to control as well. It's one of the most unruly um, parts of Turkish society. Um, yeah, because you have so, all of the political violence, or the the like the fan groups and the fa- the fan violence, right? Is is that what you're referring to? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, more in terms of it's one place where fans can chant and um, people can, and it's and it's very hard to control. It's very hard to. Turkey's become a lot more authoritarian in recent years, and the media is kind of completely under the control of the the government, and they are really changing education dramatically. But football is is harder to to control just because there's large numbers of people and and they're un, kind of unruly fans so. yeah uh, so okay, you're you're referring to the the activism which which i want to uh get to um uh, uh, later on but before we get to that you mentioned you know 97 percent supported team uh even if they're maybe not quite active um but you know i think i read in your book something like three quarters of turkish people are active uh football mm-hmm. fans uh, where did this this strong fanhood? Um, where where did it come from? Was there an event, or how did their culture foster this? Or you know, how did how did it get so high? Yeah, I think it built up over over a long time. And I think if you look at the very first um, Turkish football teams, uh, they have a kind of you, you know a kind of nationalism around them. So you have the Black Stockings, which is the the first ever Turkish Muslim team, and they their founder was saying that he wanted to uh, smoke out the English and the Greeks on on the pitch, and I think that was a you know that was a very lighthearted comment, and it was a joke, and he had a lot of uh, English friends, um, but there was this sense that uh, football was this sort of vehicle to promote nationalism or at least reflect nationalism, and um, Galatasaray as well with their um, founder Ali Samiyan, he was quoted as saying. Um, he, that they wanted to play football like the English and have a colour and a name and um, defeat the non-Turkish teams. And so I, I think from the very beginning there was this sense of maybe rivalry with um, foreigners. And um, yeah, I, I think it, it just it built up over over time. And it, football became much more popular in Turkey in the 1950s with big waves of um, urbanisation and kind of burgeoning um, press and broadcasting and uh, a big rise in football betting 
and it, football became professionalized in the 19 early 1950s as well and Turkish people in general are very they tend to be quite passionate and they pour a lot of themselves into their clubs and they really strongly identify with their clubs um, and I think this has just grown and, and, and grown over the, the decades yeah, I mean, it, you mentioned uh, its strong links with nationalism. I, I I remember reading a story in your book about when, like the um, some of the the British occupying forces were playing them, and and uh, the Turkish teams uh, actually would win. I I think I think I read that uh, Fenerbahce was like the you know they were the creme de la creme back in like the the twenties and thirties, mm. uh, and and they used to beat on uh, all these. English teams and and that brought a, a, a great sense of nationalism and pride because yeah. uh, they just had the Turkish national um, independence and and such. But uh, you you mentioned fan groups and that the first part of your book is it, it seems is all about the uh, the various different fan groups in in Turkey. Um, can you describe kind of the fan group culture in Turkey and what what that's like and maybe uh, compared to fan cult uh, fan group um, culture in the UK because uh, I know obviously you're from uh, Reading and you're probably well well uh, versed in, in that so yeah I mean the way that fans behave in the stadium in Turkey is is very very different to um, in in the UK I mean that it's more like um, similar to kind of ultras culture that you would get in Spain or Italy or Eastern Europe it's very noisy there's normally uh, a lot of uh, bouncing and, and shouting um, fans. Uh, they have these kind of conductors. That they're called amigos. Uh, they lead chants and they sort of really whip the, the fans into a frenzy. And I know they often shout at fans and, and get angry with them if they're trying to watch the match um, and they're not sort of concentrating on, you know, supporting the team. And I have some Turkish friends of mine who actually – they they really like to go to English um, matches because they can kind of just sit there and watch the the match and enjoy the action. And uh, some of the, some one of my friends has been slapped before by his fellow fans in, in Turkey for not chanting enough for his team. So they're really into flares and there's often kind of these flashbang explosions at matches and um, they're into this kind of epic choreography. It's it's much more colorful than English football you know there's not really this kind of um, casual sort of culture there's that nearly every person in the stadium it has some scarf or you know some color of the team um, on them so yeah it's, it's just a much more cacophonous passionate um, and unruly experience in in Turkey but it, in terms of also off the pitch they're they're also organizing in a different way a lot of the time um we, we could get into that maybe i don't know um, yeah let's get into it now let's let's go there yeah so yeah there's lots of groups there's all kinds of groups in in uh turkish football um so i mean fenerbahce galatasaray they have lots of different fan groups and they kind of sometimes they are reflecting political ideologies sometimes they're just based around personalities or relationships with the clubs um and so i was talking about charsha earlier it's this kind of vaguely left-leaning um main fan group from Besiktas. um they are involved in a lot of sort of activism away from the stands um i, I know someone there that he's he's just kind of like big tough 
guy and he's uh but he sort of spends his weekends volunteering at um animal shelters with other Besiktas fans and they they're often spending a lot of time together away from the pitch socializing or making banners or trying to find ways maybe if if say if there's an earthquake in turkey or if there's some kind of humanitarian i don't know disaster or something like that they can easily quickly get together and they'll um raise money or they'll people will donate clothing or books and and they'll kind of come together as a kind of like a social project sometimes yeah i mean it it kind of struck me in the book how their their club is their social community but not only is it their social community it seemed like it was as as you mentioned um their political community i mean it's it's as important in their family you know it's passed down from generation to generation as to what club you know to support and it it just it seems all consuming really like their entire identity is linked to the club and the and the fan group specifically yeah it it, it really varies i mean you have um like i said all different kinds of um fan groups with it you know in Penabache and galatasaray that may have different political ideologies and then you also have fan groups that bring people together with all kinds of political ideologies and texas is a kind of reasonably good example of that at borsaspor um they it's the it's the main um supporter group there and they yeah i met a lot of members and and they were saying you know they came from a, a very poor background um they maybe didn't have they felt weak in some way maybe that they they um uh they they didn't have much money they didn't have much maybe education or their um family was not that supportive of them and they they found a kind of alternative family in texas and lots of them maybe they vote for different political parties but the um fan group kind of brings them together um, and it's it's a big part of their lives. I mean, that's where they they're making all their like kind of lifelong friends. If something happens to them, um, they might call the the leader of their fan group. He's almost like a father figure to them. Uh, someone told me that he had a traffic accident, and he would call like the leader of his fan group because he would come and like sort it. So it's yeah, it's like a family. It, it depends. It really varies across all teams and different groups but it can often be like a kind of surrogate family for some people yeah and uh, but it, it's interesting how that how that plays with um you know hooliganism uh because uh you have what what you just said um you know these tight-knit families and then uh with all the, the different rivalries i mean there's so many in turkish football obviously you have the big three clubs but you, you know they you have some of the biggest rivalries are uh not including those uh giant um teams in istanbul like fenerbahce and besiktas so how, where does hooliganism fit into uh the fan group uh fan group culture in in turkey and how, is is it any different than um you know hooliganism in the uk in like the 80s or yeah, I, it's, this is quite complicated, but yeah, I would say, I mean, in the 80s, a lot of um, fans were kind of, folk, English fans were focusing on fighting for fighting's sake, maybe. In Turkey, it's a bit more bound up with the, the various rivalries and, and what actually happens if there's a kind of explosive incident on the pitch or, or something like that. I mean, if you look at a lot of the big um, rivalries in Turkish football, they they are... Some of them are local derbies, 
Um, but some of them are because of maybe past <laughs> grievances or injustices, um, often related to allegations of corruption and match, match fixing. And so there's a really vicious um, rivalry between Fenerbahce and Trabzonspor. And, and this is all kind of stems from uh, the 2011 um, match fixing scandal. Both, both of those teams feel kind of aggrieved. Um, and it's just it's just built up from there. I, I think there's I, th- I think the hooligan there is a lot of there is violence in Turkish football among the fans, but it's a bit I think it's a bit overblown and it's not as bad as it used to be. Certainly, the police have got a lot more organised. I mean, about 15 years ago, fans would go to away matches and there'd be a kind of huge. Uh, like welcome party from from the other team and and they would be trying to sort of conquer the they, they some of them told me they saw it in terms of like conquering other cities and defending cities and and stuff like that and there there used to be quite a lot of serious problems now it's much more tightly managed there's not too too many problems inside the stadium as well um at the moment so maybe the sort of hooliganism is overblown I, I i get the feeling a lot of english people feel that's the one of the first things they think about when they think about um turkish football is that it's incredibly maybe passionate but also a bit violent but i, I think it's a bit over exaggerated but there, there can be there are problems yeah and and so how did that lead to um so very controversially and i believe it was 2013 uh correct me if i'm wrong that the a uh, Pasa League card system came into play. Um, yeah, 2014, or, April 2014, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And, and so how did the fan culture kind of lead to that, or or did it, for that matter? And if you could just explain a little bit what, what the card system is. Yeah, so it's an electronic identity card, which you, which is necessary now if you want to go to any Super League or the, the second tier of Turkish football matches, you have to get this card. And um, it's also a bank card. So it's when you when you get this card, you're handing over all your kind of personal details and you're also becoming a customer of a bank, um, which is it's, it's a bank that's kind of kind of quite friendly to the government. And so I mean this this card was or this sort of scheme was in the pipeline for a long time. Um, the authorities were saying they wanted to it, that it would be necessary for them to kind of clamp down on violence and um, black market ticket sales and to encourage more women and uh, children to go to matches. Um, but there's been a lot of criticism against the card among fans. Um, lots of people are unhappy that um, the, the, the criticisms are kind of mostly that there's a political aspect. So some fans claim that it's a way for the the government to kind of control them. Um, You you know, it it was introduced a year after the the Gezi protests. And following the Gezi protests, there were a lot of anti-government chants in the football stadiums, a lot of uh, pro-Gezi chants. Um, This card is, I mean, some people argue that this, this card is a way for the government to kind of identify people who are doing political chanting and kind of punish them. Um, other, there's another aspect as well, which is that financial aspect. That when you get the card, you become a member of, you become a customer of this bank. Um, you're paying them commission, um, and it's yeah, a lot of people, a lot of fans, really object to it. Um, 
particularly in the beginning, there was a huge um, decrease in attendances, uh, lots of boycotts going on. And um, lots of people see it as a way to kind of control and gentrify fandom in, in Turkey to make it a bit more docile to, to kind of remove the polit- any kind of political uh, activity in the stands. And yeah, also it's, it's, a, it's a way for maybe, yeah, for this bank to get more customers and, and make money. Is it still um, kind of reviled and, um, you know, are people still upset about it or have they kind of just gotten over it? Some people are, but I get the sense that people are mostly over it now. I mean, they've just got used to it. These kind of cards, they they haven't really worked in most places. I know there have been sort of similar attempts to um, introduce identity cards in Italian football, but it's 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 in place in Turkey. I mean, it's been in place for, for four years now, and I think fans are just most fans are just resigned to it. Attendances still didn't recover fully, but they are definitely increasing all the time and yeah fan groups at Charsha were unhappy with the card now they they have it without any any difficulties there may be there's individual people that probably st- still refuse to get it but I get the sense that people are just kind of resigned to it now yeah I know it was very controversial in your book you I think you um kind of explain um in uh I'm not sure if it's that fan group or another one but how it kind of div- divided some of the members and it was a real like um, divergent talking point. Yeah, and, I, and it scares me that that it might come to like you know the UK or um, other other countries. Yeah, um, that that part in the book was focusing on um, Genshler Billy fans, and they are kind of very left wing, liberal, um, kind of in general like quite well educated, and they had maybe the most um, significant per capita the most significant and disciplined boycott of the system. Um, I think that they gained a lot of popularity um, after the Gezi protests. Uh, their attendances were, were kind of swelling, and I think they were getting up to about 9,000, which is quite big for them because they're, they're actually a very small club. Um, and when the Pasolik card was introduced, um, they, there was a mass boycott, and, and the attendances absolutely plummeted. Um, and over time... It caused splits within the fan groups, um, the various fan groups that make up against their Billy fans. Some of them wanted to continue the boycott, um, and lots of them still do. Uh, at at Genshin Billy, lots of them are still boycotting um, the Pasley card. But you know, lots of uh, other fans were. I think they they were worried what was going to happen to their club, um, and they kind of maybe resign themselves to it as just being another fact another facet of um modern football you know they pay for tv subscriptions they pay for really expensive shirts and stuff like that and they were they were also worried that their voices were not being heard uh, if they weren't on the stands but it's also very difficult for them to kind of chant politically or even have p- political banners i know some of them have been some fans have been arrested um, since they went back to the stands and fought for banners that were deemed to be, uh, yeah, too political. Yeah, let's let's talk about political activism and fan groups. Uh, we've we've kind of um, kind of talked around it, although mentioning it several times. The the Gezi protests, um, which is kind of when, where your story or once you start picking up on on Turkish football. 
Uh, so can you um, just, for the people that don't know, um, describe what the Gezi protests um, were and kind of um, why they're so important in telling the story of modern um, uh, Turkish football, or at least this decade? Um, yeah, so it began in um, 2013. Um, Gezi Park is is kind of like a bit scrappy sort of mishmash of grass and concrete. Uh, it's, it's a kind of rare green space um, on the European side of Istanbul. It's um, in the corner of Taksim Square. It's this, this vast um, square in, in the center of Istanbul. And um, the government um, wanted to basically not raise it, um, destroy all the trees and um, build a, a... There used to be an Ottoman barracks um, based on at the, where the park is, they wanted to um, build a, a barracks and maybe a shopping center and um, a, possibly a museum. And th- this square is it has a lot of kind of cultural symbolism. I mean, it's really a lot of people strongly identify it with um, Kemalism. You know, the, the ideology of um, Ataturk, uh, the founder and first president of Turkey. Um, you know, people associate with secularism, and um, there is a—it's now derelict, but there's an Ataturk cultural center in the square, and there's a statue of him. And lots of people have been uh, angry with the government's approach to the environment, and also to uh, what they see as um, gentrifying, and and um, you know, Istanbul, and um, so. There was a small protest. They started to knock down the the park in I think it was May 2013, and there was a very small um, protest against it. And there was a huge uh, violent response by the police. And it something just snapped, I, I think, in a lot of people. And um, all kinds of people started to come in and protest in solidarity, and, and not just in Istanbul, but across Turkey and all different kinds of groups started to come together. So there were feminists, there were LGBT people, um, there were, um, you know, lots of Kemalists, um, uh, ultra-nationalists, um, people upset with um, the, the government's Islamic policies, and particularly lots of people upset with, the, uh, with Erdogan's kind of personal style and his authoritarian growing authoritarianism as well so these protests got they they're absolutely huge i mean millions of people were protesting um across the country um and yeah football fans were a big part of that and this is what i was talking about earlier with um it's kind of it's been dubbed istanbul united and fans of besiktas galatasaray fenerbahce were really at the forefront of the protests and they have a lot of experience of you know clashing with the police um they know how to deal with uh tear gas they know how the police are going to react in certain situations like when when they have to kind of run when they can stand their ground um so they in, injected a bit of um yeah some some know-how they they you know yeah they they know how to they've been in these situations before so they they, they know how to handle it um and yeah and they, they weren't yeah. uh, the, lots of other uh, it's it's a bit of a misconception to say that they came and sort of saved the day they were just one element of these 
really extraordinary protests and lots of other groups were also experienced that kind of facing off against the police but I think football fans were so vocal and prominent and um, yeah they had they obviously have a lot of prowess in confronting the police. Yeah well they've always kind of had a, a, um, a target on their back. I know that when they've had uh, I, I think one of the more famous incidents is when you know uh, Erdogan uh, showed up uh, to announce a new stadium right uh, and they booed him and he was extremely angry and uh, that that put a, a huge target on on their back, and some f- some of their biggest activism moments are are in the stands. Political activism. Uh, I mean, did I, I did I retell that story right, or is, is am I, I'm yeah. sure I'm missing a couple details? Um, yeah, there was the it was uh, the opening of Galatasaray Stadium, and um, that their stadium has kind of followed a, a a pattern. I mean, there's been an extraordinary um construction boom in, in stadiums in Turkey I think there's something like 30 have been built um you know in, in 27 different cities something like that and Galatasaray was one of the first and it followed a particular model and uh Erdogan I he turned up to the opening match it was against Ajax and I think he was hoping to kind of the, the you know the government basically built them this stadium uh and I think he was hoping to kind of bask in you know, a claim, and um, he ended up being booed, and it, he he reacted. Yeah, he kind of stormed off in a huff before the match uh, started, and he lambasted them as being ungrateful, and and you know threatened to take the their stadium away from from them. Um, so, uh, and since then he's been very very careful about which um, stadium uh, openings he attends, and fans are often kind of vetted. And when Besiktas's new stadium was opened, um, the fans were banned from attending the opening because he was, uh, I mean, he was worried about being booed again. Yeah, well, I mean, haven't they also booed the the anthem uh, as well? Quite like prominently. No, the the national anthem. Yeah, or maybe no, I, no. I misread that. I no, misread I, that. I think that that was um, that was fans of uh, a pro Kurdish team, a few pro Kurdish teams. In, okay. <laughs> yeah, not definitely not. Uh, yeah. Any any of the major Turkish teams? No, they're very very nationalistic, and the last thing they would ever do is boo the, the national yeah. anthem. But that has happened with some. Um, teams from Kurdish city from Diyarbakir, basically. Okay, well, I want to get back to what what you said about the the rapid st- uh, stadium uh, construction, which is probably the, I think you said in the book the the second most um, in the world, just behind uh, China. Um, yeah. And uh, so if you if you're just behind China in terms of construction, you you are doing a lot of building, and so with that comes a lot of investment from the government is it a good thing that the government is doing i mean in your opinion at this point obviously the fans aren't as happy about it or that you've mentioned at least but do you think it's a good thing this mass stadium construction yeah i think i think it's complicated it has good elements to it i mean it's great that they're investing so much money into um modernizing stadiums and they're building stadiums all across the country so um, it's great that these sort of smaller cities are getting brand new stadiums. Um, I think there's a lot of um, odd things going on, really. I mean, I think it's building these stadiums is is a, a way for the government to 
kind of attract these prestige competitions. Like, so they're they're bidding for uh, Euro twenty twenty four. And uh, it's also there's lots of sort of it, it, it links into their patronage network as well. So I mean, traditionally, um, big companies in in Turkey have um, been kind of more to, leaning towards secularist governments and Kemalist governments, and the AKP is obviously more um, Islamic government, and they've used the construction industry to try and you know fuel the economy and also to create a new um, kind of more conservative Islamic middle class. Um, and it's a way for them to build a kind of loyal network of power. Um, so they've been building, you know, a staggering amount of um, infrastructure projects, bridges and airports and roads and stadiums are, are a part of this. So they can, if they can build a, state, a stadium in a small Anatolian city, then um they're bringing a degree of work to that city and they're showing to the people there that they are getting things done um it's a kind of monument to their you know their energy and activity and um it's also a way for them to reward loyal businesses and in the construction sector um so some of the stadiums are really they're huge and they're for teams that get really small uh, attendances so I don't know in the future if these stadiums are going to become quite a big burden on um, the state because it's, it's generally the the, sta- the teams don't own the stadiums. Um, local municipalities and uh, tend to own them. So yeah, kind of like the yeah. the Italian model. Um, but it, I mean, yeah, so I, I guess within that, it, it's striking that uh, so the the club uh really i mean has as much power almost as the city um it, it's kind of directly tied to the city and so by funding the club and the the stadium i mean you're 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 tying yourself to the club and i guess uh, gaining more political power that way yeah i mean that, like i said with the galatasaray stadium it kind of follows a model which is that um stadiums old stadiums they tend to be in the middle of cities and so what tends to happen um, is that the government, um, actually it's often a housing agency called Toki will come and sort of broker these deals because they have the kind of, they can do it I, uh, kind of most efficiently. Um, so they will typically sell the the, the land which the, the stadium has been built on to, so, so <laughs> it's a bit complicated. So yeah, often they will, the, the, the new stadiums will be built way outside the cities and the old stadiums will be um, destroyed and the land will be given over to normally shopping malls and, and private companies and the the municipality will gain money from um, these kind of contracts so it's a way that uh, it's a way for them to make money from the old stadium and uh, also you know the, the the football teams have a new stadium and so they're supposedly everyone's supposedly happy um, but lots of fans are upset because a lot of the stadiums are being built um, you know way outside the city and it's kind of disrupting their sense of community I mean this is quite common obviously in England as well lots of new stadiums are kind of quite remote and you know way out next to motorways and stuff like that I mean the economics um, is is really interesting um, in in Turkey because it's the sixth 
uh, I think the sixth largest revenue of any of the European leagues, uh, which yeah. is so it really shows how much money they can get out of it. But also there's a, a big debt that's being accrued by all of these clubs in the league. Uh, yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned before, uh, attendances um, ever since uh, the Gezi Park and the uh, Paso League, um, or actually since the Paso League, not the Gezi Park, but the Paso League system have been down. Uh, so are, is the financial state of the, the league in a, is it going up or is it going down? Um, good question. Um, yeah, revenues are getting higher all, all the time, uh, but debt is getting is growing as well and i mean it's hugely eclipsed uh, the revenues and um i think it was last year um uefa were uh finance the the financial fair play um kind of director was warning that you know most leagues in europe have improved but turkish football has got more troubling it's got worse and the assets of the clubs um are now the the debts of the clubs are now much greater than the assets and and the revenues. Um, so lots of people have told me that most Turkish football clubs would would be bankrupt if it wasn't for government. You know the government intervenes a lot in Turkish football to kind of prop it up. They um, cancel and postpone debts. They cajole sponsors into sponsor. Yeah, you know they cajole uh, companies into sponsoring the league. Uh, they try to sort of pump up the um, TV broadcasting bids as well. They they kind of encourage or maybe cajole companies to bid more than they would like to sometimes. Um, so, yeah, this it's it's mostly down to spending. I mean, t- Turkish football teams spend an incredible amount on players and they're often players who are, you know, coming towards the end of their careers and they have huge wages. And the other thing is that Turkish football clubs are mostly, um, nearly all of them are member-owned, and they they elect presidents for two or three-year terms, and it really encourages short-term thinking because if you have to win an election, then you you can't really be thinking about you know developing youth players or investing in the academy. You have to just think about you know, next weekend and how you're going to get through this season and the way it fuels a lot of um, crazy spending and the debts are the responsibilities of the clubs. So you can come in as a president, you have access to a lot of credit, you can spend a huge amount of money and then if it all goes wrong, you can just walk away without any liabilities and it's it's a really growing problem. It's a, it's a huge problem in Turkish football. Uh, if there's a big economic crisis in turkey you know and the government can't keep effectively bailing out the sport then you could see some really serious problems lots of clubs have have gone bankrupt uh if you look at some of the turkish leagues you look at teams like mercy and they have minus points because they've got themselves into so much financial trouble uh that they've had to sell all their players and they've been fined um points for you know financial malpractice and not paying players and they're effectively just fielding the youth team and they're they're losing every match and and lots of clubs are kind of going under yeah you Um, meant you mentioned uh players going unpaid um Mm. 
And that is kind of tied to another big problem that Turkish football has historically had, which is match fixing. Uh, there's yeah. been numerous um, allegations, shall we say, um, in the past. And uh, we, we mentioned earlier in, in this conversation uh, the 2011 incident with uh, Fenerbahce and uh, Trabonspor. Uh, can you discuss that incident and uh, kind of the factors that go into why Turkey has been uh, plagued by match-fixing allegations uh, over its history? Uh, yeah, so th this chapter just gave me the biggest uh, headache ever, and it drove me to uh, to drink, basically. It was really... <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's full of... This subject is full of like, conspiracy theories and, and stuff like that, so I'll try and explain it um, as simply as I can. I mean, in 2011... Um, Trabzon Spore were uh, halfway through the season they were nine points ahead and uh, in the second half of the season Fenerbahce went on an incredible run and they won something like 16 out of their last 17 matches and um, they took the title on the last day of the season from uh, Trabzon Spore and a couple of months later um, there was a, it was it's called the July 3rd um, scandal uh, lots of um, football directors and um, presidents and um, players were arrested and 16 out of the 18 clubs, Super League clubs were implicated and Fenerbahce was accused of playing um, a leading role in match fixing. So paying teams to play badly against um, Trabzonspor and uh, a pl sort of, sorry, paying teams to play well against Trabzonspor, playing paying teams to play badly against Fenerbahce in matches that would help them. And they completely um, deny the allegations. So this saga has been going on and on through various twists and turns. Um, the president of Fenerbahce, Aziz Yildirim, was arrested um, and accused of playing a leading role. And he, was, uh, he spent about a year in prison and he was found guilty. And then he was later cleared as, th as the investigation kind of changed with the changing political scene so lots of the initial prosecutors were linked to the Gulen movement and um, there's all kinds of theories that they wanted to I should say the Gulen movement is um, a, basically a network of businesses um, schools media outlets that's linked to uh, Islamic uh, cleric Fethullah Gulen they were allies with the AKP government, they later fell out with them. Um, so when they were when they were still allies, um, lots of uh, Gulenists were in the in the prosecution and in the judiciary. And Fenerbahce claimed that there was a plot to bring down Aziz Yildirim, the president of Fenerbahce, and take over Fenerbahce as is one of the most important clubs in Turkey. That's their theory. So uh, when the the, the government um, fell out with the Gulen movement and the judiciary and the prosecution was being purged of um, alleged Gulenist supporters. That's when everything kind of shifted for Fenerbahce. Um, Aziz Yildirim was cleared. Uh, they changed the law regarding the evidence because most of the evidence of match fixing was based on wiretaps. Um, so that evidence was um, basically rendered inadmissible and discredited. At the moment, um, Fenerbahce has been 
cleared in in the courts. Uh, the the Turkish Football Federation basically cleared Fenerbahce in a way. I mean, it's a bit complicated, but they said that some match fixing had taken place, but that the presidents didn't know about it. So so. It, yeah, it's a little bit complicated and it's very much bound up with politics. Um, but match fixing has been a serious problem in Turkey for decades. People are always have always um, suspected that it's been going on and there's been lots of different investigations into match fixing throughout the years. Um, I mean, it's widely ex- accepted that it's it has been a fairly widespread practice, both in terms of um, gambling, so... Um, making money by, you know, kind of uh, ensuring results and also for sporting success or to avoid relegation and stuff like that. Um, and part of it is to do with um, the financial problems in Turkish football because if people are players or referees or, you know, coaches even are going unpaid, then they're much more open to, you know, accepting bribes and stuff like that. Of course. I mean, you know, they, they got to get their money somehow. Um, so they, they turn to fixing matches. But I mean, it, is that that 2011 incident? I mean, when I was reading it, you know, my uh, I was much like you. I was I was like, oh, my God, there's just so there's so much going on here. Like, I, yeah. I, mean, I was astounded you could get your head around all of that um, because I, I know I struggled uh, for sure. Uh, yeah. But is that 2011 incident like have the Trabon sport? fans have they gotten over it like is no. it still like you know no, is it still current um, yes definitely it's had a lasting impact and Travis and sport fans have not gotten over it um yeah so they they are still Travis and sport are still trying to uh get some kind of legal redress i mean um uefa and um the court of arbitration for sport did a, an initial investigation and they ruled that Fenerbahce had um, fixed uh, several matches. Lots of people say that the, you know, the counter argument to that is that um, they weren't able, you know, they, UEFA and Casper, they were not really able to make a informed decision because the, the, the evidence has been faked in previous um, cases uh, in, in Turkish in Turkish courts and um, some people are claiming that the evidence has been manipulated or edited or um, you know basically changed in a way to to make Fenerbahce uh, look bad so um, but it's had a massive impact on Turkish football I mean the the attendances started falling um, after after that scandal before Pasadik um, it and it's really just it's just creates everyone feels like aggrieved every team feels aggrieved everyone feels um like a victim Trabz- Trabzonspor when they play Fenerbahce I mean the matches are absolutely just fraught with uh, with problems I mean that there there's been several matches that have had to be abandoned because um spectators have ran on the pitch and I think it was it was a couple of years ago. Um, a fan ran onto the pitch during a match against uh, Trabzonspor. A fan ran onto the pitch against uh, during a match against Fenerbahce and rugby tackled the fourth official, and that match had to be cancelled. So it it's it's just I, I think Turkish football is moving is moving on from it, but 
Trabzonspor for them, they, they just feel cheated. They feel robbed. They haven't won a championship um, since the 1980s. And it's very, very emotional for them still. And, and they're really, a, a lot of the fans are obsessed with it. Uh, and they, when you when you suggest to them, you know, that maybe they should move on, then, you know, they say, well, would you move on if, uh, you know, the league was stolen from your team? But, of course, Fenerbahce deny, strongly deny all the allegations. Of course. <laughs> of course they would. But I, I, I would still, I'll, I, I would still be uh, very upset if I was a on Spore uh, fan, uh, for, for sure. Well, writing the book, uh, what, what did you learn that most surprised you? Um... It's, that's a tricky question. Um, I mean, because you talk to so many, uh, you talk to so many interesting people, fans, ex-players, ex-managers. Uh, but it, was there like just a little nugget that like just kind of blew your mind, or just like made you look at everything in a different light? Yeah, I, I think like I said at the beginning. I mean, I just so it was really surprising how. Just as I as I was starting the research, you know how how political Turkish football is, how bound up it is in culture and identity, and to I I don't think I think it would be difficult to write a book, but you know you couldn't write the this kind of book about English football. It just football just doesn't it's just not that politicized in England. It's just not that. Uh, you know, you, you can you can get into nearly every facet of Turkish society and explain it through football. And it, I, I, I felt like that's what I wanted to do with the book. I just wanted to tell like um, a story of Turkey through football and maybe use football as a way, an oblique way to kind of uh, get people interested or, or help them understand complex situations that they maybe wouldn't would maybe avoid or maybe wouldn't be interested in i mean stuff like um the kurdish issue or yeah corruption and match fixing and conspiracy theories and you know all all that kind of stuff so yeah i'm not sure there's one incident that really blew my mind and there's plenty of weird stuff that happened um when i was in turkey i mean yeah but well, um, well, you can't just say that and, and just leave it hanging. I, I now I have to know what what's what's this weird stuff you're talking about. Uh, I mean, it was just stuff that I haven't seen anywhere else. I mean, like massive, um, like brawls in the VIP areas of um, of clubs. I mean, there was one match between Ankara Guju and Ahmed Spor. Um, it's it's kind of a very fraught match because Ahmed Spor is from the Kurdish majority city of Diyarbakir, and Ankara Guju is a very kind of nationalistic um, team. And yeah, just just seeing officials um, throw each other off, uh, you know, like down to the bottom of stands and and like punching each other, and you know, that that kind of stuff was a bit odd. And the uh, when I went to Trabzonspor for the presidential elections, I mean, it's it's just a very Trabzonspor is Trabzon is a very um, it's a very interesting place. And um, when I got to the city, I mean, it was like a national, it was like a general election. There were pictures of the candidates everywhere. They were pump, they had campaign headquarters and pumping um, campaign songs into the streets. And 
Yeah, maybe it's a bit hard to convey, but uh, the, just the, just the level of tension around the um, the vote, and lots of people have guns in Trabzon, and everyone was kind of like depositing their their guns before they were entering the arena, and then it was going really really emotional in there, and I'm sort of glad that everyone's guns have been uh, confiscated. Uh, I don't know, it's just the level of Emotion and intensity around Turkish football is it's kind of a bit strange. Yeah, the, the intensity uh, shines through in the book. Uh, is there anything you'd like people to take away from this interview or anything you'd like to promote? Any call to action? Um, well, the, the book is out now and it's available on Amazon. Um, and uh, I also have a blog which I'll be um, updating um, more often from now on uh, called Turkey from the Terraces. Um, oh, what a catchy title <laughs> <laughs> thanks um, and yeah I mean I, I just like people to yeah I, I hope people that really people that read the book I, I think will appeal to anyone that's interested in football or Turkey um, I hope I kind of got balance the balance right between sort of football and politics and culture and identity and I think if you if you read the book, I mean, hopefully it'll be a very entertaining ride through uh, modern Turkish history. And Tur Turkey is such an important and misunderstood country. And Turkish football is full of, you know, really interesting and kind of crazy characters. And um, I hope people, uh, the people often talk about, I mean, and a lot of the book is about the different problems in Turkey, like, um, crisis and financial crisis in Turkish football and how Turkish football m might collapse and all the problems in Turkish politics but I would hope that some people there, there are some positive stories in the book as well and there's lots of people doing amazing work uh, in football and uh, so I, I hope that it's it, it, I hope it kind of complicates the picture people have of Turkey, you know, in a, in a good way. Yeah, well, the, those uh, stories you're referring to were my favorite parts of the book. Is uh, a, I mean, you must have done like 30 or 40 interviews with, or it seemed that way, with like all the different fans and um, uh, interesting characters, as, as you said. Um, th those were my favorite parts of the book. So uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today uh, and enjoy the rest of your book launch. I hope everything thank goes you. really well. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you.